there was something remarkable, something truly transformative and, and life-shaping as one generation transmits its heritage to the next. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, we often have conversations about IEW being classical. Is it really classical? Can it only be used in a classical school? This is not that conversation today, but it's going to feel very much like IEW is classical and is used in many classical settings, such as classical conversations, great heart schools, which we are excited to have a role in helping that organization grow, including you speaking at their conference this coming February. We also have the privilege of having a guest on our show who can speak to this more fluently than well, certainly certainly I can, and I know you and Oh, I you love and Ra- guests yes. on the shows. You know that. <laughs> and I don't have to talk so much. But this one, I particularly was excited because uh, I was just saying to Nathan, this is one of the smartest, mm. goodest noblest, cheerfulest guys that I know. And wow. so it no, is. No pressure, Rob. No, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. With that lead up, how can I possibly fulfill? How can I possibly fulfill that? That's wonderful. Thank you, Andrew. Thank yeah. So Dr. Robert Jackson, and uh, what is your title? What is your actual role? I am the executive director of the Great Hearts Institute. Awesome. So we need a little bit of history. How did you get involved in classical education, the the very short version? How did Great Hearts come to be, and what is it today? Well, I'll try to pack that all in pretty quickly, but let me just give you my short-form biography, autobiography. I had for years been interested in uh, education and great works uh, from as early as uh, my time in high school and the youth group and uh and, and on college campuses in various ministries. But I would end up taking a degree, an undergraduate degree in psychology, and then studying, knowing I would go on to grad school, education. I really felt a calling after having uh, spent a year overseas working with teachers, future teachers, and just thought there was something remarkable, something truly transformative and and life-shaping as one generation transmits its heritage to the next. And so getting to know those teachers in uh, in Hungary, coming back and getting graduate training and so forth, I landed at a small-ish liberal arts college in Manhattan, the King's College, and was given both the mandate or at least the, the strong encouragement from my provost to design an education program worthy of the name. And by that he meant, show us the history, show us the philosophical underpinnings, let's prepare the next generation of undergraduates to know more about education than our generation by really diving deep 
and then in the process, prepare and equip them to go out and to take their place in classrooms across this country and perhaps even to lead and start schools. Now, I did that for 12 years at the King's College. And with, I guess it was probably about year eight or nine, I bumped into a headmaster, school leader from one of the Great Hearts Academies, whom my student introduced me to because he was being recruited. Student was being recruited. Headmaster was just in town. He introduced us. We hit it off. He invited me to come see the Great Hearts Academies. I visited and was just smitten. I was awestruck because I'd been watching charters and you know other forms of classical education, but I'd never heard of the Great Arts Academies based in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, but after I did, I quickly changed my my tune. You know, I was telling students primarily that they were thinking about going into the classroom. Well, you'll probably want to find a classical private school. Maybe you'll want to join Teach for America. This is back in the 2000s. But as soon as I discovered great arts, I thought, you've got to go. You just got to go and check it out. At least give them the first right of refusal. Several did. Several were employed by the Great Hearts Academies. At that point, I believe there were probably about 15 or 16 schools in Phoenix serving six or 7,000 students. Again, I was so struck by the phenomena, the way this thing had sprung up in the desert, that I was just delighted to have some small part providing them prospective teachers. And those teachers went. Eventually, I got a call from the co-founder, Dan Scoggin, who asked if I could come out and help, perhaps because he saw, I would say, the quality of the young people that left my classrooms. Uh, and that was that was on them, but, but hopefully I had some small part to play. And because of those relationships that were, were forged with Great Hearts, they were looking for someone to help and to lead and to establish more connections and more uh, more positions within higher education where we could recruit and where we could train teachers ultimately from Great Hearts. And that's how I joined them in the year 2013, uh, nine years ago. Well, and it must have been almost for you this sense of having finally found you know, this great mission that you completely align with because when I'm around you, you just ooze enthusiasm. You are enchanted. You are enchanting. Anyone who listens to you for any length of time wants to get in, do do it, be part of it. I'm just curious, when was the first Great Heart School open? Do you know? 20 years ago this year. So in 2002, the Veritas Preparatory Academy was opened in, um, in, in a rental facility, uh, a church that they were renting uh, with 120 students, grades 7 to 12. Actually, at the time, it was grades 7, 8, 9, and then they would add a year each year. So 120 students. Um, and as I mentioned, that first decade, they saw the first school followed by literally 14 more that opened up one after the other. In fact, they started as prep schools, but then realized we could do so much more if we begin working with those elementary, those grammar school students. So they opened K-5s, added a sixth grade to the prep school. And from 2010 onward, we only opened complete K-12s uh, under Great Hearts. And so there's typically, if you come to a Great Hearts Academy, you will typically find two campuses co-located, two, you know, two sort of facilities, but it's, it's a single facility just kind of divided in order to keep the K-5 elementary students and the prep school students uh, separate 
relative to um, their their classroom space and some shared commons with a you know uh, athletic facilities and theater and, and and performing arts centers and so forth. So that growth that again I first witnessed in uh, I guess it was 2011 was was just explosive because they had found a need. They had found and tapped into a need that parents were expressing for a better form of education. And these are classical, charter, and therefore public schools that are available to anyone, anyone who wants to to apply. The state has a, a lottery system, right, so that there can be a fair distribution of those seats. And these charter schools and Great Hearts Academy is just absolutely devoted to Adler, Mortimer Adler's dictum, the best education for the best is the best education for all. So what was perhaps once available only within elite academies should be brought to everyone in the community. And that's that's how they grew. I love that. The best education for the best is the best education for all. That is that is magnificent. And that is painful rapid growth. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm assuming Arizona is a very charter school-friendly state. Not all states would be quite so amenable. But to start a charter school, I mean, it's quite a process, isn't it? Uh, just give us in a nutshell, what do you have to do to get a school up and running? Well, as you allude to, the state and the state's regulatory apparatus uh, is the first thing you need to understand. Charter laws are available in all but two of our 50 states and thus make it available uh, under the guidance of the state, the Board of Education, the, the Department of Education. But depending on how your state approaches these, those charters can be more or less easy to access or to, to, to promote or produce. And so in the case of Arizona, when they first opened Great Hearts back in 2002, the application was made to the Charter Board, which was a separate or independent entity that oversees and regulates all charters within the state of Arizona. And to your point, today, nearly 20%, one in five school-aged children are served by a charter school in Arizona. So it has been uh, really a leader in the country in terms of charters. To your question, Uh, the application for the charter presenting the model that the school entity intends to deploy, uh, the staffing and business model, so that there is obviously a, a fiduciary plan for how to execute. And ultimately, uh, because as I said, the state requires a lottery mechanism, you have to advertise and or promote the school so that its availability or accessibility is given to to everyone within the community. Those are the essential steps, but you really have to think through, okay, what's our model? Because effectively that's that's your your entry into the market, if you will, the, the parental market. And then you have to think through the business model, which I think is probably where a lot of folks, idealistic folks, uh, folks like myself, really have had to learn what is required to prop one of these up. I mentioned the, the rental space for the first school we did a lot of rentals at Great Hearts in the first decade. Today, we're at a different place. We have sort of a different capacity and are largely propping up new school builds. We've kind of built a model or constructed a, a template that allows us to produce uh, for relative 
ly inexpensive. And when I say that, we're still talking about multiples of millions, right? But nonetheless, we can pencil it, as they say, to produce a school that has the facilities that we want uh, to produce. And these schools average, average uh, on the lower side, the grammar schools are somewhere between five and 600 on average. Uh, and similarly, the prep school will average between six and 700 students in each. So they're small by standards of, of, of our district counterparts, right, of the public schools down the street. Um, but that being said, I, I, would, I would repeat that getting familiar with charter laws in your state to determine if in fact this is something that will be likely, you know, because there may be very limited numbers of charters or there may be a real openness to charters. Uh, we are in Arizona and now Texas. I should get to that quickly just to express the growth. Uh, and that's because both of those states have been amenable to charters. But then I would say the business model is the thing to be mindful of for anyone who's really serious about propping one of these up and being attentive, always attentive to your base. And by that, I'm talking about parents, community leaders, even those within the community, business leaders who've come to see the value of placing one of these schools in their community. Um, value by which I mean property values are, are, are often known to rise if a Great Hearts Academy is situated in a particular neighborhood. But the value is is nonetheless uh, perceivable, perceptible. So, Rob, I have a, a question for you that I think maybe our listeners, some of, many of our listeners might have, is charter. You keep saying this word charter school. It's a publicly funded educational program. How is it different from the public school down the street? Or how is it different from homeschooling through a charter school. This is not a independent study type program. This is a five-day week program. Is that correct? That's right. And I think you will see even Great Hearts has begun to investigate because of the, the interest in some of these modified approaches. But our brick and mortar, if I may use that term, our schools yeah. are those five-day a week, sort of the, the, the you know, the, the eight to, to three p.m. Uh, school offering including athletics and extracurriculars and after-school programs. I mean, there's a whole slate of things that go into one of these schools. Uh, but but to, to the point, we have built them, these charters are different than what you might find in your local school district. They're public, but they're public under the aegis, as I mentioned, of some kind of board or governing entity at the state level that makes provision for a model to be delivered distinct from and uh, governed by a board and or a community, uh, you know, a, a leadership organization, in our case, what's called a charter management organization. So that CMO is responsible for fulfilling the charter. The charter is the contract, if you will, with the mm -hmm. state, right? The contract that says if our organization can produce this model in this community school, the state will pay us per pupil funding, often a little less than what our district counterparts receive, as it turns out. But nonetheless, they will pay us per pupil for each student enrolled and thus publicly funded schools under the aegis of this charter provision in any state. Now, mind you, provisions for chartering can be done at the state level, as in Arizona, they can be done through university entities. That does also happen. And then you'll see many states, including uh, Florida, Louisiana, states we're looking to enter in the next couple of years, where we have a district 
offering a charter. So literally, the Great Hearts Academy that's going to go into Baton Rouge this coming fall, 23, is a charter overseen or governed by that same district board, right? That same entity of educational authorization that's running the other district schools, but making provision for this specific model that they have approved. So it's distinct and looks different than the one down the street in part because it's it's contracted, if I can use that language, to do something different. And that gives you control over curriculum and who you hire and how you schedule things within certain parameters. I, I'm curious, obviously it hasn't been a hard sell to get people excited about a more classical curriculum. I, I love how you said, you know, working with the teachers in Hungary, you said passing on the traditions from one generation to the next. But I think there is this this conflict between the progressive idea and the classical approach, you know, however you want to do that. So give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of what is the general curricular scope of a Great Heart School and how do you approach educating people about the value of that? A classical education, as we would use the term, and I think this applies to most classical schools to be found in the country, focuses on that tradition of liberal arts education that encompasses the arts, the sciences, and the whole sweep right, of subject areas that constitute human knowledge. To the best of our ability, again, pertinent to or relevant to uh, the age and the developmental capacities of the child. But we will, if I could just kind of enumerate them, study uh, basic literacy and numeracy throughout their career, which will lead them into the study of multiple languages, study of the arts and the artifacts of the tradition, and that would clearly include music, visual art, drama, poetry, those will be throughout the 13 years, right, at a, at a classical academy. And then, in a sense, the coherent center, right, for this form of education is equipping those young people to lay hold of, as, as you quoted me, the tradition that we have inherited. And that comes chiefly through the great works, often referred to as Western civilization, you know, canonical great books, but not just books, great works of art, great works of history and philosophy, to be sure. And imaginative literature is just replete. The curriculum is just filled with that, in part because we're so dedicated to, to borrow the title, uh, the poetic imagination, right? Uh, the, the poetic diction of Owen Barfield. We're trying to convey to young people that the mind and the spirit are made to be integrated. We're, we're, we're made to know the world and we're made to love that which is there before us, that which is, is given us. Um, and so I would say just chiefly, a classical liberal arts education emphasizes primary sources, gives ample context in the form of our nation's history, the, you know, the history of the tradition, I should say, not just our nation, but, you know, all that sweeps back into antiquity, the political, the legal, the religious, all of the social features that have given shape to this tradition, and that we work that out in what's typically referred to as a Socratic seminar, 
a Socratic seminar uh, sort of mirroring or echoing much of what Socrates did in those platonic dialogues, the back and forth, the exploration of what we know. And by the way, all of this, all of this curriculum has an attendant pedagogy, a very distinct and integral pedagogy, the seminar being one of those features, such that laying hold of this great tradition becomes the child's engagement, the student's capacity to know and to apprehend and to to be a part of what's sometimes referred to as the great conversation. They're not passive bystanders. They, they are certainly not those who are just sort of receptacles being filled up. They are agents, right? They are active in coming to terms. They're joining this conversation that stretches over literally millennia. And they do that in the context of a school culture that emphasizes civility, curiosity, intellectual modesty, honor, nobility, as you said earlier. Uh, these are just critical to the formation of mind and heart. Hence our name, Great Hearts. I was wondering we, if you were going to go there. Yeah, yes. <laughs> we, we're sold. We're all going to move to Phoenix so we can put our kids and grandkids. Well, in. turns yeah. out we can go to Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Yeah. And <laughs> so now um, you said you've expanded into Texas. I know that because we have uh, contact with many of the schools in Texas. How many total are there now, Great Hearts Academies? 40 serving 27,000 students in those two states. Um, we are in San Antonio. We have schools in Dallas and in Fort Worth and some of those neighborhoods. I, I want to be careful here because Texans really love to identify very specifically with <laughs> their locale and God bless them for doing so. Uh, but, but, but that being said, it's not just DFW, right? There's more room to grow in Texas uh, with those other metros like Houston and Austin, and that's to come. But next year, 23, we will be opening a school in Baton Rouge, and then we have a charter, have just received a charter this summer, to open another in Jacksonville, Florida. So our trajectory as an organization has been to the east. We're headed uh, back to the east, as it were, from whence I came. <laughs> now, mm. I would guess that you've got a – your curriculum's pretty well set because you've been at this 20 years you know what works, you know what you want to do, you know the things you don't need to do. I'm assuming your students, if tested by state standards, perform very well uh, without having to, quote, teach to the test, as the way many schools do. But I'll bet getting great teachers is one of the challenges you face. Am I right? It is absolutely job one. I've often said that our talent team, right, those who go out and recruit – the folks, you know, I told you I was I was engaged by a, a headmaster who was out in New York, New York City, recruiting. Well, we have a team, more than a dozen, that goes, you know, into the highways and byways and across the country to college campuses, largely, to recruit undergraduates and graduate students uh, to come and join us. And at this stage, again, trying to serve those or populate the classrooms of 40 schools, requires that we will have uh, probably on the order of 4,000 applicants for 600 spots that we will hire. And so it is just a nonstop, constant cycle of generating more and more leads. Uh, and to find the right kinds of teachers, as you said, means that we're, we're really looking for those who have some inkling of the liberal arts tradition. And if they, if they weren't necessarily steeped in it, 
something because most of us did not have a classical education in in you know in the past couple of generations if they weren't steeped in it are they receptive to it are there are there signs that they are hungry that they want to discover the tradition and they're ready to learn right they're truly uh, receptive uh, and eager to pass on that tradition to the next generation those teachers those types of teachers are are not easy to find. I'll just put it that way. They're not easy to find, but they are crucial to the success of our endeavor. And you've worked, um, I know, with, you know, I'm sure you get teachers who have varying levels of interest, commitment, passion for what you're doing, but you work kind of on a continuous, I wouldn't even say continuing education, it's a continuous development of the faculty of the schools. That, I think, is something that's both challenging and attractive. You know, people want to be part of something that is growing, that is vibrant, that is enriching. And, you know, just working for a school and you kind of get into this grind and after about five, six years, it's so easy to think, what am I really doing here? Am I making a difference? Is it worth it? But at your school, what do you do to keep those teachers growing and more and more integrated because obviously some of them have to take over leadership roles at a certain point. You, you you have to grow and recruit from within for the leadership, I'm sure. Oh, that's absolutely right. And I would say that that training or assimilation into classical education, because again, I would say the vast majority of our teachers, the majority of our teachers would not have received a classical education, would not have gone to a great arts or a great arts like school. But they may have joined a great books program in college. Uh, they may have been a reader all their lives. Uh, and in any case, when they come into our academies, we begin first with that school leader whose primary responsibility is to cultivate the faculty, to equip and to assimilate them into the school culture that I described by way of the pedagogy right, that we deliver, which focuses on the content. Why do we teach mathematics as problem and proof and that sort of solution, the development of mathematical thought and thinking? Because that's that's intrinsic to the nature of the discipline. Why do we teach history with a sympathy and a, an expression that these who've gone before us need to be understood on their terms, what they were facing, with an understanding that we weren't there, the, the the stakes and the rules of engagement, it was just another time, another place, but they were human as we were human. What do we see there and how can we read their stories, their lives in a way that helps us to recover some of our humanity, to understand our humanity from whence we've come? Uh, and I, I use those two examples simply to state that if we can find teachers who love their subject matter, and that is crucial, but secondly, and equally important, love students. And again, that desire to transmit what they know to that next generation, then we can work with them. And the school leader is primarily responsible. We call them headmasters or head of school. That term it actually derives, the headmaster, derives from the, the notion from kind of yesteryear of the headmaster teacher. These are master teachers coming up through the ranks that are now providing that oversight and equipping that faculty. But at the network level, we're blessed because essentially we have 40 
headmaster teachers, right? 40 schools, 40 leaders. And we have a very gifted and talented team dedicated to the development of our faculty. Uh, my dear colleague, Geraldine Olson, dear colleague, Jake Tawney, responsible for PD or the development of the people in our organization on the one hand, and then responsible for the curriculum and the success of every student on the other. These two folks, they just work hand in glove to make sure that all of our schools are outfitted or equipped with what they will need to work through a process of, as I'm calling it, assimilation or acculturation into the classical model, especially in those first two to three years of a young teacher's uh, tenure. Uh, so important that they they know that they have a headmaster who absolutely is devoted to them and is devoted to their success, and that there's a network-wide structure, set of structures that are there to support them with their lessons and their planning and their preparation and with models or master teachers to whom they can they can go to understand better the craft of teaching. You began with kind of just your great hearts people. And you started a conference, and I think I missed the first one but came to the second one, if my memory is correct. And now this thing has just grown every year, and it's going to be happening in February. I'm very excited to come because I feel like, you know, in a way, and I, you don't have to specify, but I'm sure there are people who do not like what you do. You, you are threatening to certain progressive elements and so there is that need for solidarity. There's that need to get everyone together and be reaffirming of the vision. And uh, so tell us a little bit about the organization that is bigger than Great Hearts, as well as the conference that you will be holding in February in Phoenix. We propped up the Great Hearts Institute about four years ago, formerly known as the Institute for Classical Education. We had a slight rebrand this summer just to clarify for all of those friends and colleagues in the wider classical movement that we're here in a very magnanimous posture to help and provide some of what we've learned to a broader public, to other schools, most of which nationwide are operating in relative isolation. I think the benefit of our CMO, of our, our network of 40 schools, is that collective wisdom that I mentioned. And we have brought that to bear on this uh, in this institute as a place for us to bring scholarship and research in contact with practitioners and derive from practitioners, but also sort of reporting to practitioners, what are some of the best and the brightest ideas that you're going to need to know as you teach in this classical school? It was effectively a, a professional development project, a, a, a gathering when we first did it internally. And then as you said, four years ago, we opened it up to our friends and colleagues across the country and felt as though we were stepping forward to say, we've learned a little bit in almost 20 years, and we would love to see what you're learning out there in the broader movement. Because there are three or four associations of classical educators, most of them, I think all of them to, a, to an org, uh, are private and religious. And we bless them for doing that, but we know there are another 220 or 30 classical charters like great hearts in this country and they don't necessarily find uh, you know the, the perfect fit for from a classical religious association instead we wanted to to prop up a big tent and invite all of the 
private, religious, classical schools, and all of the charter classical schools in the country to the same convening here in Phoenix, which we do in the springtime, which is not a bad time to come to Phoenix, as you can imagine. It's only only in Phoenix is February considered spring. Exactly. Everywhere else, thinking. it's still winter. But <laughs> another good reason to go to Phoenix. Uh, how many people uh, are you expecting attending this year? I know it's grown every year. Started around 300. We expect around 600 this year. And then, of course, we'll have a few hundred online because we'll open up some, some content for those uh, who can't necessarily get to the Valley of the Sun. Uh, and we have just an all-star cast of scholars and practitioners like yourself who are going to be coming delivering content uh, for two and a half days focused on, and our theme this year is, the tradition today. So we really want to sort of dig into and explore how is it that the tradition that we've talked about throughout this time uh, transmitted to the folks who are living and breathing right now? How do we make it so very uh, relevant, and I hesitate with that term only because this is often sort of a, a critique. Is that really relevant to be reading Plato or Dante, right? Uh, aren't those a bit outdated? And of course, we know they're not in that they have a perennial, uh, they have a perennial message uh, for what it means to be human. And so we want to talk about that in this year's event. And we've got almost 40 scholars signed up to join us uh, today. And we will be going at it for math. We're going to have tracks in math and science. We will have a humanities track, a fine arts track. And this year in particular, we're going to dedicate some time to exploring and providing real kind of nuts and bolts talk around school culture. How do we promote school culture? And then through all of it, leadership. What do we do to lead this movement forward? I think that's that's particularly uh, salient to this moment because a lot of folks have begun to take notice of classical education and they need to understand that in their local community, they potentially need to consider how they will add value or participate in the classical movement in some way, shape or form, whether they're a parent, whether they're a potential board member, whether they're a teacher, or even a prospective school leader, I think this truly is a movement that's going to call upon many Americans across this country to step forward and say, I want to join that movement to renew classical liberal arts education in this country. This is so awesome. It's so awesome because it is so easy for me to just get depressed almost to the point of hopelessness about the condition of general education and the future and the literacy and numeracy levels of people, if it weren't for people like you, schools like Great Hearts, parents and teachers involved in this, I think I would just I would just give up totally. So I, I need to come to conferences like this just to keep me hopeful for the future. And, and then you see the power of it, the transformative power. So anyone can come. You don't have to be uh, a Great Hearts uh, faculty. You can from like anybody could sign up and come to the convention. Oh, absolutely. And we expect about 400 from outside, probably a couple of hundred from our own organization. It's uh, it's welcome to all. Well, let's let's wrap it up with you giving us the exact details on how people can get the information on when, where and how. The National Symposium for Classical Education will be hosted February 22, 23, and 24 
in Phoenix at the Convention Center, which is right downtown and a quick shuttle from our Sky Harbor Airport. Uh, the details for the symposium can be found most easily by going to our website, www.greathearts, all one word, dot institute. From there, cover page, you'll see the symposium. Click and look through the speakers, the program, and the details can all be found very easily from greathearts.institute's website. And we look forward to seeing some of your listeners there. And of course, Andrew, you and your team from IEW, we're looking forward to, to hosting you as well. And I'll just throw in one thing. The, the times that I have attended, uh, I have been profoundly uh, impressed. And, and in fact, one speaker in particular, um, Willingham, who talked about general knowledge and reading comprehension. That was so incredibly impactful. I've I've cited and quoted that talk and his work many, many times. I would never have known about it without you. But the thing I really love is you create enough space for people to have kind of the fill-in conversations and, you know, meeting people from all over the country and uh, I think you have organized it in this super balanced way to be a conference where there's all this high quality presentation, but there's also this this opportunity for conversation. And uh, I just commend you for you and your team. I know it's not all you, but it's been it's been great, and I am very much looking forward to it. So greathearts.institute which I honestly didn't even know was a domain. <laughs> right. I, it's pretty cool. We should get we should get <laughs> excellence in writing institute. We'll stick with IEW.com. I think that's pretty yeah. safe. Well, Rob, I would just want to close by saying I hope all of our listeners heard you say, like I did, that it is remarkable to be a teacher. I love that. I love that that is your heart for education. And I think um, that is going to continue to propel great hearts forward. And Andrew, can I go to this conference with you in Phoenix? (laughs) Well, I don't know if you have time. Right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Rob. God bless. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.